0: Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Hey guys, welcome back. We are doing another episode with my father, Rusty Bruchet. How you doing, Matt? Good, 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 good. Glad to have you back. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yep. um, Exciting stuff today. We're going to talk specifically actually about patents and how do you handle patents when you're doing product development? How do you do it in a company? Uh, And there are some life lessons learned from this guy, and he's going to share all of those tidbits with us. Um, I think probably the best way to uh, think about this in terms of what this is going to be about is we're also going to do some questions, Q&A. We posted some stuff on Reddit uh, and did a little uh, post there to kind of get some publicity to some audio engineer guys who maybe care about uh, the the story, and they have some questions for you. So maybe at the end of every session, okay. that we'll sounds be good. Doing some Q and A. Okay. Um, I think where we want to start is just re- rehashing some of the story that we've heard th- thus far, so we can kind of contextualize right. where your expertise with patents comes in. Right. And so you had gone through, um, you had really the sound business, Shoco. Right. And at that time, you were out developing sound systems, and lighting really wasn't on the board, right? That's right. I mean, just you were doing a little stage lighting, but the idea of being a stage lighting manufacturer or producer was not really there.
1: Well, in the 70s, we were in the stage lighting rental business.
0: Rental, right.
1: But we were renting you know traditional equipment, park hands and dimmers and right. trusses and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and so you went through um, the patent process with Shoko. So you actually we had did. a patent?
1: Yeah, we filed for a patent in the 70s on a speaker design that we call the pyramid uh, uh-huh. speaker. It was a folded horn enclosure that was a four-sided folded horn with a pyramid-shaped center part that made the, the shape of the horn. And we actually built some sound systems using the pyramid yeah, design, I- and we... we we did receive a patent on it and And you made money using it it? Uh, we made money in the rental business using it we never made money as far as licensing or anything like that right um and did it provide
0: extra value i mean clearly people paid for it so it offered Um, some value i don't
1: think in that particular case having a patented system uh gave us any advantage because everybody sort of had their own approach in those days and yeah. Everybody kind of did their own thing. So do you remember
0: wasn't... back in the 70s what it cost to do a patent?
1: Um, it probably cost a few thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, but it was just kind of part of business. And yeah,
1: it wasn't. Um... You
0: had a funded business at
1: that time, so it wasn't yeah.
0: a significant thing. Right. Yeah, and if you, but would you guys have filed a patent prior to revenue? Like would you have gone out and taken out a loan and filed a patent? No. Yeah. Not then, no. No why is it a bad strategy or just well
1: we weren't um doing anything that we deemed patentable i mean in, in, in hindsight it may have been but the industry was in its infancy and we were basically putting together pieces of equipment from various manufacturers and we weren't making anything ourselves other than in the ear- in the earliest time when we first started, we weren't making anything. We were just assembling things.
0: Yeah, and when you guys were doing the patent, were you
1: like, "Man, this is this <laughs> is the jam. We are going to make millions. Um, I don't no. I don't think so. I, I think that we just felt that, uh, that this it was a unique design. It was actually designed by a guy that worked for us named Ron Fox, and um, we built quite a few speakers around the idea. Uh, but uh, moved away from it as time went on. Yeah, just performance
0: issues or... You know. uh,
1: this, the, the basic concept of, of bass speakers moved from horn enclosures, folded horns, to reflex systems where the speakers were all mounted on a flat front panel, and you just used a lot of speakers and a lot of amplifiers. And mm-hmm. The whole re- idea behind horns in the early days was efficiency because uh, you you had... You didn't have a, uh, a lot of uh, amplifier power in the early days, and uh, you you, you so know the, you were trying horn? to save money, so you you would buy two loudspeakers and try to build a, an enclosure around them using horn loading to get more efficiency out of the design, and
0: so the horn would provide physical efficiency.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like you know holding your cup in your hand in front of your mouth. I mean. And, it just uh, when you couple a, a horn, it's like a trumpet or a, yeah a trombone or whatever, when you put a horn on front of a mouthpiece, it amplifies the sound. yeah, okay,
0: and so the technology just kind of knocked that out of the way. And- well,
1: once uh, amplifiers came along that were high power and plentiful and low cost, and as speakers became more readily available, it was better. Just to load uh, the sound systems up with lots of speakers and power them up with lots of power. So.
0: Yeah. Every time I think I feel like I've heard a horn amplifier or amplified speaker, I feel like there's echo.
1: Well, and it's, it, yeah. It it actually uh, it also what they call colors the sound. Mm-hmm. It kind of gives a honky. Yeah. Um, texture to it, and so it um, the reflex systems, which is what is used today, uh, is a, is a better way to go. Right. So you had a little patent experience. You'd actually we did. F- we, filed we, a patent. Yeah, but we were real novices. You know, we really hadn't, you know, we'd done it, but we really weren't we, we didn't really know a lot about patent law or patents or anything like that. you Remember how old you
0: were at this time?
1: Um about thirty. Yeah, thirty. Yeah.
0: Um and so you have the, the very light.
1: Yeah, we came up with that and uh When we came up with the prototype of the Verilite, we knew that a patent was going to be very important for that because we felt that we had created something that uh, we used the term seminal, which is in patent law, a a seminal patent is a groundbreaking original patent, like the first integrated circuit patent by Jack Kilby at Texas Instruments. You know, that was you know, uh, there's also a guy... Intel, you know, that also did it about the same time, and they kind of battled back and forth about who actually was the original inventor. But uh, the idea of that original integrated circuit patent is a good a good example of a seminal patent from which everything is going to have to go back to that patent. So if you own that patent, you're going to get a licensing fee on virtually anything integrated circuit variant that's ever going to be made because you've got the original idea of creating components on a silicon wafer and you've patented that concept you know right now there's gazillions of patents that emanated after that original patent on all those variations and improvements and different stuff but it's still uh it's still if you can ever come up with a seminal or an original patent, and you've really got something. And we felt that the very light idea, when we first came up with it, we thought we'd we were the first ones to ever have thought of moving a light and making it change color. We did, we didn't know that that idea had ever been done before. We found out later it had. It's uh, also a
0: little bit pre-internet, right? Yeah, it I mean, was.
1: It, it was. Uh, yeah, we. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, we there was no way to really search easily. Yeah. Uh, Yet you, you could search, do patent searches in the patent office, but uh, it was very difficult to search prior art. Yeah. And all that now sort of thing.
0: nowadays, it's almost impossible to find, uh, which I think patent law has not cut. Co- I mean, I don't know much about patent law, but I can tell you that it's almost impossible to find to not find some bones of some idea that you have. Yeah. out in existence, either yeah. cobbled together or thought about or at least blocked out in terms of yeah. being an idea.
1: And that makes it difficult to get a patent because if it's been published, if the basic concept of what you're trying to patent is has been published, then you can't patent it.
0: Yeah, I actually, I mean, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the other podcasts and some guest podcasts I've done, but I think Amazon is in a very dangerous position relative to everybody else having a seminal patent on Really, what I consider to be the next operating system, right? Right, with their Amazon Go store re- right. redoing retail, I think that's going to cause some serious problems because uh, it's such a combination of really advanced technologies, right? All working together. Yeah. Uh, but from that, there's a million ideas that come from that new operating system, right? right? There's that new ways, and so you can sit here and think of probably or predict a thousand products. That will come from that idea, right? But that are not possible until that idea is in place. Yeah, right. So that
1: idea becomes a seminal idea.
0: Seminal idea, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's interesting to see that in real time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've really seen that in my generation. Yeah. And um, how does the how does the law handle that? Right? Because if you allow a thousand patents to grow from that single idea, that are kind of predictable, right? Software is highly predictable. Yeah. And um, how it can kind of grow.
1: Well, you don't. um, If you have the original patent, I mean, then you're happy to see all those things grow because you can go after all those people for licensing fees, and get a lot of income from the from your core patent that they're going to have to use to implement what they want to do. But it's uh, all that has to do with patent strategy, Mm -hmm. and uh, we should talk about that. But I think first we ought to talk about the original. Very Light Patent, and uh, after we built this prototype, we immediately had a meeting with a patent attorney. Uh, And this was even before we demonstrated the prototype to Genesis, and I negotiated the deal with Tony Smith to fund the whole thing. I knew that a patent was going to be really important. And in fact, the main asset that Very Light limited this partnership that we formed with Tony Smith, the main asset it was gonna hold would be this patent we were gonna file for. Because we wanted to own the technology, and we felt that the patent was going to you know be the the, the symbol of the technology, so we uh, we put uh, we had a meeting with a patent attorney and we described what we had done and everything. yes, so we had this meeting with this patent attorney and described what we had done and um, we did we as i said we were we were novices and we put our faith in the attorney to to write the patent and to write the claims. And looking back in hindsight, um, we didn't get the, the seminal level coverage for the patent, the very light idea that we should have gotten because we didn't understand how important it was for us to participate in the patent application process and the claim writing process. And in the process of trying to distill the essence of our invention and make sure that we could patent that in its simplest form to give us the broadest coverage later. Yeah. So if, because when you build a, a product like Verilite, which was the first one, the basic concept behind it was this combination of this this, new lamp that ge created this metal halide discharge lamp and we combined it with dichroic filters color filters and we made a system where we could change color by changing uh wheels around that had these filters in them but you end up with a combination claim where you have to have elements in the claim that together create the invention and that's where you can get in trouble because when you write a, a patent application and you write the claim, everything in the claim uh, is, makes up the claim and, and for someone to get around that claim, all they have to do is change one single thing within the claim. So if you say you have to do A, B, C, and D, and they do A, B, and C, and then they do something different for D, then they'll get around the claims. So you have to really be careful about how you write the claims and you have to really understand. And what we found was the attorney we used just didn't really understand what we had done or the impact and of it. didn't or... really know how to write the claim correctly. Yeah. And so we ended up with a claim that had a lot of elements in it that later allowed ambiguity, ambiguity about what the claim meant. And it also allowed competitors to try to get around the claim by changing minor parts of it so um, I really my lesson out of that in hindsight you know years later looking back on it having gone through a lot of patent litigation and spent many hundreds of hours with attorneys and being in court many many times is it's really really important when you write the the first patent that you pay a real attention to the disclosure part of the patent, which is the description of your invention. You need to study the prior art and understand what others have done and how you're different and how you're distinguishing your invention from the prior art. It's really important how you write the claims and what the claims say. And the claim language is very esoteric, legal language that's real specific to patents. And so you have to kind of, kind of learn the language like you would Spanish or, you know, something like that. I mean, it's a real, uh, you know, terms of art they call it, and you have to get fluent in all those things. And your 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 engineering group has to participate and be involved. And you have to do a lot once you get your claims written and really get the patent ready to file. You need to have sessions where you say, okay. We're sitting here, we're competitors to this patent. What are we going to do to get around these claims? How are we going to get around this patent? What are we going to do on this claim right here that says A, B, C, D, E, and F? How are we going to attack that? What, it, what other ways are there that we could, that could do that and not infringe that claim? And once you come up with ideas that are valid, then you write new claims before you file the patent. Right. You know? So you try to anticipate what's going to happen. I think... You can't just call up the patent attorney, have a meeting, and go away and think everything's okay. It just doesn't work that way. Right, it's a much it- more complicated and much more intimate uh, endeavor within your organization than that. It, it, it just goes to the, the root and heart of everything you're doing, and it's so important that everybody is mindful of patents and aware of of patents if you're going to be in the patent game which you know you have to make that decision it's a very expensive game yeah but you know in this
0: industry there's a lot of people who have ideation and come up with new ideas yeah and they they tend to pursue products yeah people who are doing the work tend to invent products right that's what i would say that from just the outside of people i know in the industry and and how they pursue ideas right um so That sounds good on paper. Right. Right. I mean, like, that's, yes, that's probably the most cohesive patent strategy that I've ever heard, right? Right. As far as how to run a patent idea inside of an organization. Right. There's no way you could have done that, right? Because, like, even just a few podcasts ago, you talked about having to build 50 lights three months or whatever it was, right? You guys were burning 20 hours a day. You were getting just 50 lights built. Yeah. and just trying to build these incredibly complicated things, when would you have had time to do that, and when would it have been too late?
1: Well, it's it's too late once you file the application. Okay. Um, you can't – I mean, you can try to – I think there is a procedure for adding to it before a certain time, but I can't remember the, all the rules. But yeah, but I mean – like Basically, we, you really want I mean, to make sure it's all in there. And I think you just have to make the time somehow. I mean, it is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So it is difficult when you're starting out if you have no idea what a patent is and you've never even read a claim, you don't understand what how claims are written and what all those words mean. But um, it's really, you know, it, it's just, I think it's just part of the design process if you really are If you really feel that what you're doing is patentable and unique, and and particularly if you think it's seminal, if you think it's really going to be a core piece of technology that everybody's going to have to use in order to do the next big thing, you just have to figure out a way to make it part of your design process to learn about it.
0: Yeah, and did you file the patent before you had your first show? Did you need to, was there a time, a sequencing? Like, did you have to file it before you went to Barcelona? Yeah, but, but, yes,
1: but we filed it well before that. We filed it in February of 1981. Okay. So, But we worked on it night and day, and we were, uh, it, you know, we we were we, it was an urgent thing for us to get it done, mainly because I needed it to get the partnership put together and finish up the legal side of things to get the funding yeah. we needed to get everything built. So there was a lot of urgency to... Make it all happen, and we felt that we were going to get real good coverage, and we got good coverage. We didn't get fantastic coverage when we got the patents. Yeah, but it was awarded, and uh, we did defend it and successfully, and several times in court. Right. Um, but it was a uh, it was an experience that I look back on, and I really regretted not. Spending more time at the time to see if we could get better claims. But the big thing in my life that really changed me with regard to patents was I was chugging along. We filed the original patent in 1981, February of 1981, and everything was going along great. This was, we had built more lights and we were getting more tours, and the thing was taken off. And in, um, September, I think, of 1984, I get a letter in the mail from a patent attorney in New York who was accusing us of infringing a patent that was owned by his client in New York. And I was just, I was amazed. I was dumbstruck because I thought that we had come up with the whole idea ourselves and we'd never, you know, I had. I thought it was, you know, yeah, original, no way that right. it was original, you know. And what had happened was there was a group of theater guys in ba- Basel, or Basel, Switzerland, in the 60s, late 60s, who came up with the idea of an automated lighting system using conventional technology at the time. It was tungsten lights and big gel color wheels to change color Mm -hmm. and they built automated lights that were gigantic that were the color wheel on the front was like three feet in diameter because it had you know eight inch gels and there were six of them around so you built these giant wheels and all the lights were made out of cast iron (laughs) and they used like quarter horse motors for pan and tilt they were like battleships and they hired a professor at the local university in control systems to design the control system to run it. And his name was Fritz von Balmus. <laughs> and the name of the patent was the von Balmus patent because he filed the patent once they got it done. And they, they put together this system, and von Balmus built a control system using discrete electronic components. There was no integrated circuits or anything so these he had a complete wall full of electronics it was like 12 20 feet long and 10 feet tall full of equipment that he had built just to, to be able to control like 20 or 30 of these lights you know analog and they used uh, core you know uh, I, I can't remember the term but they used for memory they used them the technology of the day. And it was really an amazing thing. They they managed to get state funding to build it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they filed this patent for it and got the patent issued in 1970. And um, a guy in New York who was a patent hobbyist who was in the stage lighting business, found out about this patent and went over there and bought it for $5,000. And then came back to New York and hired a really big New York patent firm to assert it against us, to force us to pay royalties. And it only, the patent only had one claim, but, and it was a very long rambling claim, but it incorporated all of the elements that you needed to have an automated lighting system that had recallable cues where you could program mm-hmm. the lights into position, store the cue, hit a button and recall the cue. Right. And the way the claim was written, you know, and we we tried everything we could to um, invalidate the claim. We we went to work researching it and discovered that moving light, the idea of moving lights went back to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Up until the von Baumus system, all of the lights were what was called open circuit. In other words, you just you had a motor for pan and a motor for tilt and you had a button and you'd push it, and when the light moved to the place where you wanted it to, you took your finger off the button and that was it. There was no memory. Right. The von Baumus patent was the first one to implement the idea of absolute values. That were stored in a computer for these parameters that you could recall. Right. So the light to would create just create a cue. go to the same place, to yeah, exactly. Go to the same cue yeah. and be the same color and all right.
0: that. Kind of important when you're trying to get a spot or a mark yeah. on the cue. Yeah. Like people so, may think about that, like in terms of the host going to the mark right. on the stage. Exactly. They often go to.
1: And so this this patent had nothing to do with dichroic filters. Had nothing to do with the new GE arc lamp. It had nothing to do. With what we had done, we had, what we had built was a, the practical, the first practical automated lighting system. Right. And the breakthrough that we'd come up with was this, that Jim Bornort had come up with was this combination of dichroic filters with this arc lamp, that gro- grossly, tremendously miniaturized the light fixture. You know, our fi- fixture was 14 inches long and 10 inches by 10 inches. Yeah, and, and how many watts was it? It was the equivalent of a thousand watts. It's yeah. 350 watts, but they were. But it's later on, you got that up to
0: art. several thousand watts, right? I yeah,
1: think. we did. But it's um, this was the example of even though our our equipment was not doing exactly what they were doing, in order for us to do what we wanted to do, we had to do what so they patented.
0: They had a patent that was fourteen years old by this time.
1: Uh, yeah. It was. Okay. And a
0: patent last how long? Uh,
1: twenty-one years, I think. Okay, so you it may have the patent may have been issued in the mid seventies because there was there Enough. was a ten or fifteen years left on it at the time, as I recall. Okay, and so um, you know, I I immediately did not want to uh, to file. I didn't want to pay royalties, and so I decided that our best strategy was to sue them uh, for to try to, to force the patent to be invalid, to file what's called declaratory judgment motion because we felt the patent couldn't possibly be valid. We felt like somehow or other there had to be prior art somewhere that would invalidate it and we, we searched and worked at it uh, forever. I mean, I, I, I ended up knowing probably more about the history of stage lighting than any person on earth by the time we got through, but. We couldn't find it, and so I ended up um, settling and paying uh, over a million dollars in, in royalty payments to this guy for this patent that he had paid $5,000 for. So you gave him a one-time offer? No, no, no. It took four years of negotiating and litigation in court, and we spent a lot of money on legal fees So you stuff paid, like that. You ended up settling? We settled, we settled with him. Yeah. And paid As him opposed
0: out. to a perpetual royalty, he, was, he took a million bucks and yeah. left. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good
1: investment. It was a great investment, and, you know, I I respect his uh, cleverness and being able to do it, but it was a painful experience. So that experience sort of changed our life because it it galvanized us into the other side of patents. You know, you think, oh, how wonderful it is to have your patent and to come up with this great seminal idea, and all these people are going to pay your royalties. And what you don't think about is... What if you are the one infringing and somebody shows up at your door after you've got your system, your company off the ground and you're going and all of a sudden you find you're infringing patents that you didn't realize you were infringing mm-hmm. or you're infringing patents that you don't think you're infringing but somebody else thinks you're infringing. And it, it's, an, it's a tremendous problem because the expense involved to deal with it is enormous and it shuts down all of your financial relationships and stuff because people that are loaning you money and banks and all that don't like patent litigation. They don't like uncertainty. They don't like the thought that you could be stopped from doing business or be forced to pay huge amounts of money out, not to mention the amount of money you're already paying for legal fees to fight it. So it made us all of a sudden realize that there's two edges to the sword there's the edge of getting the patents, but there's also the edge of making sure you're not infringing patents. Right. And you also end up with people that go out and start trying to patent what you're doing in anticipation of what you're doing. So you 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 want to be you find yourself if you really are gonna be in the patent game and have a a really sophisticated patent strategy, you need to be filing very aggressively for patents all the time
0: so taking that out of that example that you were in but like that's a a great topic we'll talk about when we come back right which is pre-planning other people in like the chess game of the patent war that comes out in this ideation of products and guessing where the market's going to go right so we'll be back in a minute once you guys listen to uh some kid play some kind of instrument we have around here thanks Yeah, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We're talking today with Rusty Bruchet about patents. Yep, patents. Going into uh, where we left off before, I think we had kind of a conversation going around the chess war of patents.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to say that um, the two-edged sword of of getting your patent application together and then worrying about whether or not you're infringing others. When we first filed our our very light patent, and we did the prior art search and so forth, the von Baumus patent didn't come up in that search. And if it had, we may have, hopefully, maybe we would have been the ones that would have tried to purchase it because it would have been a very powerful addition to our patent that we ended up getting, but we didn't know about it. And it was because of the way the patent office operated at that time Everything was manual, and all the patent filing was manual in paper form, and it was very difficult to really do a prior art search and to be accurate in finding every patent that related to what you were doing. But it would seem that that one was so close to what we were doing that it would have come up, but it didn't. So it's really important, um, again, in this initial stage, to spend as much time looking at what's going on and what the prior art is and what's happened before as it is working on what it is you're doing and what you want to patent. It's really important both sides of it. And it continues to be important as time goes on because as you successfully build the first product and you get your first patent and then you start improving your products or coming up with variants or, different ideas of products, you end up with quite a large portfolio of patents. And you have to be aggressive about filing because if you don't, somebody else will file and you'll find yourself having built a product that all of a sudden somebody shows up and they have a patent that they've written. And there's there's also two fundamental philosophies about patent law my, that I've observed as far as the philosophy about how you go about writing the patent itself. One one school of thought is you want to be as cons- clear and concise and as above board and trying to explain exactly what you're doing and be very exact about what your invention is and make it clear to everyone what it is that you're trying to cover. It's sort of the uh, Boy Scout approach. Mm-hmm. The other side is a, a different, completely different approach and that approach is you go in and you write the most difficult convoluted impossible to understand patent with impossible to understand claims wildly broad far-reaching claims and you go in and, and you build you, you just start writing claims and patents on just ideas that you have or you might have picked up somewhere or heard over a beer somewhere uh, there was a, a famous guy named Marvin Limelson who did this approach, and he was quite a sharp guy, obviously, because he came up with lots of different areas, but he he had a lot of patents on barcoding, and he was able to extract millions and millions of dollars uh, as barcoding became the thing. He also...
0: Like skews and just being able to scan SKUs. Yeah, he also
1: and- did... Uh, the windshield uh, automatic windshield wiper patents on automobiles and a a rear view mirror patent you know stuff like that where he came up with you're going to need a rear view mirror or something i I don't know i haven't studied i can't really recite all the stuff but it it's a very valid strategy because of the cost and the complexity of of patent law and trying to enforce patents. that if you come up with these claims that are good you know good enough and and Ambiguous, you know, and you know, ambiguous. obscure enough. Yeah. Then you can kind of get people to pay you off just to go away. So there's two different approaches. We, we always took the Boy Scout approach. We tried it to make we tried to make our claims and everything as clear as we could, uh, because we felt that that was the best way to to go forward. Right. But there's two different approaches, and uh, if you ever get a, a, someone to come at you with a claim from a patent written. In the in Lemelson School, it's very difficult to deal with it because it's expensive. Patent right. litigation and all that is just tremendously expensive, millions of dollars.
0: Yeah, and so hindsight, would you go back? And, I mean, so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things you said there. So, I mean, just to stay on the theme of kind of the chess war of patents before we kind of dovetail into some maybe some hindsight you know, yeah. <laughs> strategic advice. Um, w- right now, I mean, the only thing I have to reference this to is really what I see as the Amazon Go thing. Right? Yeah. You have this one store, this new technology, a lot of people messing around with it, but ultimately I think that they've settled on it. I think right. that uh, you're not going to be walking around with glasses or goggles anytime soon. Right. right. You're going to go into a store, the store is going to follow you around and it's going to offer you software Right. Uh, experience avatars, personalization, memories to shopping lists, you know, and it goes right. on and on and on, right? Right. So right now we have like you and I could probably sit down and come up with and I'm not I don't I'm not exaggerating in any way, shape, or form. I think that right now we could come up with at least a hundred, if not five hundred valid software products that will come out of the Amazon Go technology. Right. right? What they call proximity software or right. find you know persistent software around finding it around your body so would a strategy right now be to go out and just start patenting those ideas
1: that would be the uh alternative strategy to the boy scout strategy yes and that would be a good example of it you could you come up with a because the thing about patent laws you do not have to to reduce it to a working unit you know you you can patent a concept in the disclosure and write claims and you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be something you actually built. So you can come up with, you could sit down and come up with ideas and research it and write claims and disclosures and all that and come up with things that you could then try to license to people later. Right. Know? And it just depends on how good your claim was. And
0: So there's a lot of patent trolls out there right now that them. take yeah. something like Amazon is doing yeah. and then they just start extrapolating yeah. And the only defense that Amazon has is to really take that also that technology and start yeah. extrapolating on its own,
1: yeah, and you can bet they are oh, you can yeah. bet they 've already got a group of people doing exactly what you 're talking about they 've already started thinking about all the offshoots of that and they 're trying to come up with as many ideas of their own and so did you ever
0: turn it tune into this strategy as a way to defend your patents is to just start filing an obsessive amount of patents
1: we didn't we didn 't take um, we never went the, the approach just to do it uh, to try to create as many ambiguous claims as we could. We took it in that we we were constantly developing the very light technology and come up with new ideas and new products. And we just f- formed a very aggressive internal patent committee that f- covered and filed for anything that we came up with that we felt was patentable. And we did it uh, as a defensive maneuver. More so than anything else, we we didn't really have a. I didn't want a license because we were renting the lights, and so I didn't really want to. I, I wanted, you know, to keep our technology for our own use, right? Make it proprietary. Yeah. So uh, I really didn't have in my mind the idea of, of of royalties or anything at the time. I was really just trying to make sure that everything we were doing was well covered, and that we wouldn't have problems with. Uh, other people coming in on us later because we got more and more sophisticated about prior art searches I mean as the internet came to be and as the patent office became computerized uh, the idea, the ability to do your prior art search is far you know far improved over what it was in nineteen eighty
0: yeah and did you ever have the did you do you have any examples of where the defensive strategy played paid dividends or or actually was effective?
1: Um, I think probably our most successful product was the VL5, which used a really unique radial color-changing system that Jim came up with. That, I mean, and people that, can
0: look that up online. Maybe we'll post a picture of it. But everybody's yeah. pretty much seen that, right? It's the, it's the stage light. It's You can see it's the color. Round. Yeah, yeah, it's round. It's got round. A kind of black dot in the middle. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, if there's any product that you did that was famous, I would say that that's probably.
1: I, I, I kind of liken it in my mind to to uh, something like a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster or something. It's one of those classic products that even today is still being used. It's right. like over 30 years ago we did it. Right. Because it was, it just it worked. You know, it yeah, was a you can wonderful. Look into the light, you, can you you know, you into you
0: light. you know, not get you know, eye know, you know, you like the poking you in
1: the system was really beautiful to was at. I
0: actually remember uh, watching the Olympics one time and I you know, you know, the know, one time, and I think it, I don't know, what year it was. you know, it was you know, you know, Ninety six, know, you know, you know, you know, you the you the you they put the you light. That light they put the VL5 over the shoulder of the lighting designer yeah. and the tv designer had the the light on over the shoulder of the gold medal person right so when you saw their face and them looking at the flag going up right the light was over there and then in the middle of the broadcast they actually made them turn the light off <laughs> right and you could just see the light was no longer on because it like took away from yeah. you know it was supposed to like yeah. amplify i thought it did but it's clearly yeah. some tv producer was like turn the light off you know
1: <laughs> well it was uh, the VL 5 was definitely a tv star it looked camera loved it but what i was getting to on that is the patent that for that light is extremely good and very broad and the design was extremely unique and we covered it really thoroughly and we never had anybody try to infringe it because it just was what it was and there was just really no way around it so you just everybody just left it alone interesting so uh and I, I still believe, in my opinion, that's the proper way to do patents. I don't really go for the other met, the other approach. I just find, I mean, it's, it's, it's generated billions of dollars, that other approach, but it's not something I'd want to spend my time doing.
0: Yeah, maybe um, kind of focused on how you want to live your life comes into yeah. play. There's a lot of ways to make money, let's yeah, be clear. right? Kind. I yeah. mean, you just have to choose how you want to make yeah. money.
1: And uh, so it may, the other approach might really appeal to a lot of people. But it, uh, it, it once you get into it, you have to do it. And then once you get into it, you got to start thinking about, okay, am I going to file all the way around the world for this? Because if you're going to try to license in all these countries, you have to file patents in all these countries.
0: Which is even more amazing that those guys in Sweden actually
1: filed the patent in the U.S. and he yeah, was able to purchase it. Absolutely, it, it yeah. is. It's Switzerland, actually. but it's Switzerland. And, you know, an interesting side story on that system is when when we got into this litigation I actually flew to Basel and saw and went to the theater where this was yeah I think and uh, so- the system was there it, it it was it hadn't really been commercially successful because the control system being discrete components and it was just so incredibly complicated that they it had a real difficult time so you were so
0: well, hold on you were so obsessed with this lawsuit? and kind Absolutely. Of, and, like, you figured out this thing was in existence? Like, how did you even figure out that it was in existence? Well, it was,
1: in, I, it was in the patent, and the, the, the inventors were listed, so I looked them up and, and then I, you and found out that it was in a theater in Basel, Switzerland, and so I went. I mean, I had a friend uh, that was doing research for me, and we went all over Europe looking for prior art and, all, you know, all, anywhere we could think of where they may have had some sort of moving light that would have predated that pattern, we went and looked for it, you know? Yeah. So I went to the theater, and I actually saw this, and I actually met with these guys who had been, who had developed it, and um, I was just amazed at what they had done. I mean, it was, it, the technology, unfortunately, just wasn't right for what they were trying to do, but they were too, they were too far ahead of their time, you know? But, we had built this control system, this control desk for the VL1, the very first system that we put on the RoboGenesis in Genesis in uh, September of 1981. And we had built it, in, and one of the features of it was we had a, an array of buttons that if you punch the button, it, you, you selected the light you wanted to program. So yeah. if you wanted to do pro- light number one, you pushed button number one, and then the, all the knobs and controls on the control service Worked for that light, right? So that was how you programmed everything. And uh, when I walked into that that Basil's theater and looked at what that Dr. von Baumus had designed as the control desk, it was almost identical to what we had done with our system. If you, in fact, it looked like we, you know, it, we we were totally unaware of it, but it looked so similar. We I was just shocked. I was thinking, you know, it was just amazing that he had just gone down the same path of thought that we did. Yeah. Because when we first came up with this, there had never been a control system built from automated light other than theirs. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, you had to kind of, okay, well, if I'm going to do this. I'm going to have all these parameters and I need to make this light move and Select the color and the beam size and the dimming. And how am I gonna? How do you do that? And how do I do it quick? And right. We said, well, the first thing you need is you need a button for every light, so that yeah. you can just go. Punch I mean, it there's you know? there's something there, and I don't
0: necessarily know how to unpack it right now. Yeah. But there's clearly something there between knowledge and common sense, yeah. right? And like, what I find about the truth, like whenever I ideate with people or we yeah. come up with ideas, the moment you find the right thing, it immediately becomes common sense for everybody in the room. Yeah. Right. And there's that really fine line of like communicating ideas and putting yourself out there, but also being defensive enough and documenting, you know, the thing that you actually came up with, because the moment it's right, it's just you get no credit. Like there's going to be zero (laughs) credit for it because it just it becomes obvious and nobody can think otherwise. Right. Right. It's like it's been unlocked and now it's in the world and, and now it's over.
1: And that's a that's a definite feature of a seminal idea. Right. A seminal idea is, becomes totally obvious once it's disclosed. Right. So. I,
0: I mean, to me, that's the, that's the emotion and the sense that I get with that, that new kind of software approach, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like it's just – it's so the way it's going to be, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it's like, like – I almost am like – I almost – well, we did a podcast a while ago, and I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I gave 10 outrageous software predictions for Amazon Go and now that I think back on it, I was like, I should have put dates on it. I should have said, okay, but I need consensus in the room that like nobody's really paying attention to this technology right now, right? Like, There's like not, not really any retail stores that have this, and it's not on anybody's radar, and nobody really understands yeah. how all of this stuff is going to affect their life, right? Yeah. But it's going to affect your life, and it's coming, and it's completely obvious, and once it comes, you'll be like, oh yeah, of course there'll be an avatar next to my can of spaghetti. Of course that makes sense. Of course the spaghetti will light up because it's on my shopping list of course right like you know and it's like that's not 10 years away you know what I mean that's yeah. probably like 18 to 24 <laughs> months away right you know they've now released their did you hear that they're coming out with 3,000 more stores oh, really oh yeah they're on it's done <laughs> like the, the idea of all these retail stores failing in this whole like yeah. apocalypse it's really just these just retail people who were not Uh, classically like the last kind of thing to fall right you know like maybe the important part about a retail experience wasn't the technology it was just proximity and so that was the predominant character and now we're moving into this whole thing where it's like okay yes it's proximity but it's also experience and entertainment and engagement
1: but they're still doing stores oh yeah they're still doing
0: stores let's not kid ourselves right we're not removing the commercial districts from the united states you know like we're not just going to do everything by mail
1: sort of like when they started they you know were going to do everything online but they were spending all that money building warehouses you know yeah
0: that's like really and that's what amazon did right he was like and people made fun of him they were like well why are you building all these warehouses with all that money he's like yeah "Uh, no reason <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you guys just keep yeah, talking about your 80 pound man. dog food you know <laughs> coming through the mailbox <laughs> i'll work on this over here um okay. so fascinating information about patents and maybe we can kind of circle back to that because i think there's a lot there um as we get to the end of the podcast today i really wanted to take a chance and if uh people have questions they can always email me uh Uh, directly or come through the site or, you know, if we post something on some sort of forum. But I I definitely want, you know, you have so much knowledge. I don't even know what questions to ask you all the time. Um, But we did get some questions from Reddit. I posted something in the live sound, uh, you know, because I figured that, you know, that would be, if you had anybody interested in your career history at all, that would be the live sound guys, certainly. Um, And so... um, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. We're going to save a couple for the next one. So if you don't get your uh, question answered, then definitely stay tuned because we've got some more coming. Uh, But we have um, X32S asks, uh, I'd be interested to know about how uh, your, so this is going back to very light. Uh, This is going back to Shoko and actually being the sound man for Led Zeppelin. So this is kind of that part of your story. And he wants to know how the Led Zeppelin sounds Set up scaled as you worked with them so you worked with them for how many years like six or eight years 10 years 10 years yeah, yeah. and so and you did all their sound I mean but every year you were yeah seeing the system and actually building and you were the guy so the guy. It, there's yeah. probably no other formidable expert to answer this question in the entire universe <laughs> other than that's you that's correct and, except for maybe the accountant who has a list of all the stuff right um and so how did their setup scale as you from year one through year 10 with Led Zeppelin, how did their setup scale? And then what is your, you know, the perception of the technological changes through your time with them?
1: Well, they, you know, I worked with them from 1971 till 1980 when John Bonham passed away. And um, that was really the 10 years when we kind of created Shoko Sound and it was an evolution of um, development as we were building and improving these sound systems. So Zeppelin themselves didn't change over that 10 year period as far as their stage setup. They basically used the same equipment, the same instruments, um, and we built shows around them with lighting. The lighting rigs got much bigger and more complicated and all that. But the sound system just got more powerful because our our challenge in that first 10 years of development was to get the sound loud enough. You know, it it took a long time for us to figure out how to go and get a system big enough to where it would really sound good in a really big hockey arena. And we were, as I said before, we were constantly fighting the acoustics of the room and we didn't really understand the directional nature of sound like we needed to at the time. We, you know, we, as we built these systems, we were sort of putting a lot of energy into these arenas and exciting the environment. So we're sort of fighting ourselves because as we turned the systems up louder and louder, the room uh, reverberation became louder and louder and it was hard to get, a lot of clarity out of the system, so I would say, and to answer the question directly, they sort, you know, they just sort of followed the evolution of our development of sound equipment over that period, and I kept trying, as I would do every tour, I I wanted to have a better system than I had last time, and so we were constantly reworking and rebuilding and redesigning our equipment as we went along. And I would just keep putting out the latest, whatever our latest system was. That's what I used for the and next tour. Were
0: they aware enough to know that you they would what to ask for? Like, I mean, was it sophisticated, or would they like, all right, well, Rusty's got it. He's
1: no, they were they were real sophisticated. Well, John Bottom was very sophisticated in what he wanted his drums to sound like. Yeah, he was a meticulous uh, musician with regard to his equipment. He. He tuned every drum meticulously, every gig. He, uh, he paid attention to particularly his bass drum sound, and he always wanted me to, you know, he always told me, he says, I want it to sound like thunder. That was right. his big thing, you know. Right. He wanted, he had, a, he had a vision in his mind of way he wanted that kit to sound. And he would, uh, I still remember, in, in, we were playing a gig in Nebworth, which was an outdoor show in England, in nineteen seventy nine. It was right before he passed away. But uh his son Jason, uh he had, start, had been teaching him to play drums since he was like three or four years old. And uh I don't know how Jason how old Jason was at Networth, but he was probably I would say, I don't know, eight or nine years old maybe. But anyway, I was I was out at the board, uh in the soundboard sitting there Uh, the crowd wasn't in, and and, um, while the band never did sound checks, uh, I always had somebody um, get up on the drum kit and play and whatever, but in this particular day, the band did show up, and uh, I was out there looking down at the board and getting the drum kit uh, tuned in, and it sounded, you know, I thought thought Bonzo was on the drum kit, and I looked up, and on my right shoulder and he was standing there, and when I looked up on stage, it was Jason, his son, that was playing, and I, I couldn't tell the difference, and I had been mixing this guy for 10 years. I mean, I knew his drum sound better than anybody, probably ever, as far as in that period of time, and I couldn't tell. Wow. He's played just so perfectly, but he was, John Bonham was standing there, and he had comments about the way it sounded, and he bathed. He asked me about certain things so he was very connected yeah. the other one that really cared about it was robert he really cared about his vocal sound right and he wanted a really strong powerful clear vocal sound he was really into his effects and his reverb and echo and all that yeah and uh, page you know was he was interested as well but he was more interested in the the mixes you know i always did a, a show tape off the soundboard, and I would give them the copy of it, or I'd give them the tape after every gig. And he would make comments to me sometimes about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, John Paul Jones also uh, cared about his bass sound. Right. And, so uh, it sounds
0: so like you had a really healthy relationship, or everybody yeah, kind of had their way of dealing yeah, with it and understanding. Yeah, and they what the- cared
1: a lot about it. And in, and in those days, the relationship between. The sound and lighting people and the artist was quite tight. Right. You know, it wasn't... You didn't have layers and layers of people that you do today. Handlers because losing. the shows were not as huge as they are now. I mean, right. the, the level of production now and the scale of the shows now is so enormous that you just, you know... it's. You used to have but I, I, even, even now, I, I'm sure that there's still a relationship between the sound man and the artist. Because, you know... Regardless of all the video and lighting and staging and all that stuff, at the end of the day, the thing that I think every artist cares the most about is how they sound. Right. They care more about that than anything. So they're, they're going to have to have faith in who's ever mixing because even today, in a live sound gig, when you go to a concert, what you're listening to is the product, product of what that sound engineer is producing. hmm you know, the artist is playing, but what you're hearing is the mix. And that mix is happening in real time. It's live. Right. And At every guy, seat,
0: every, 50, you know, 50,000 yeah. seats, 50,000 different areas yeah. where it's coming through. You got to right.
1: care about that. And so that uh, guy or girl, whoever is out there and doing that sound engineering now, they have to really be good. Right. And they have to have a great ear and they have to. Uh, really and that's complicated, and right? I mean, it takes study, you have to yeah. understand
0: it, and you got to get yeah. experience in reps and yeah. put your stuff up in about 100 rooms and figure out what it, what it does, right? I do. So um, do you remember what kind of mics and what kind of setup Bonham had on his?
1: Yeah, I used uh, mostly Shure mics, but I used an RE-20, an EV RE-20 on his bass drum because I liked the way it sounded, and the RE-20 really worked well. Uh, right up. He actually had a hole in the front head and we would stick it in the hole, but uh, I used sure mics, uh, mostly uh, SM57s, on his uh, other drums. I, I, I mic'd the top of the snare and the bottom of the snare separately hmm. and mixed those separate because the, the, they sounded obviously totally different and uh, I was able to get a really nice, other than his bass drum sound, the sound that he cared the most about was a snare. And he used a, a chrome Gretsch snare, a really thick one. I think it was eight or nine inches deep. It was really a thick, deep snare, and had this tremendous tone to it, which mm-hmm. is such a. And he really worked that snare to, uh, tuning. It he he would just go with his fingers. He'd tap around the edge, the perimeter of the head, like you would a bongo drum. But he was constantly t- listening to each one. He would tweak the you yeah know, the the uh, drum kit, the key on around there to. You, get it just the way you wanted it. You have know? you seen these
0: new drum tuners they have? That no. You just, it just measures the surface tension on the top. You <laughs> just put it on there and you just dial it in. <laughs> he it, wouldn't have used it, that. It takes like, it it takes like no five way. minutes, man. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's exactly, I don't know, it's pretty dialed in, you know. I don't know. But, he, yeah.
1: uh, he, uh, you know, he didn't have a gigantic kit, you know. He had one, had one bass drum They made sound like he had three. And uh, he had the snare and he had a couple of toms and... Floor tom and cymbals, and that was about it. and hi hat. He was big on the hi hat too, but he was uh, he was just an unbelievable drummer. Yeah. He, he he powered the band. He was he never wavered. Out of all the years that I mixed him, he he never he was always a rock. And so was John Paul. The two of them together, they just held the whole thing together. And then Robert and Jimmy just played on top. Right. And uh, Page's guitar sound was tremendous. He used his Les Paul, with two Marshall stacks. And he had two Marshall heads and then two Marshall speakers. He had a Marshall head and two speakers in each stack. And he would, uh, he'd turn the, he had his roadies. On one stack, he'd turn the treble all the way up. And on the other stack, he turned the bass all the way up on the tone controls. And uh, it took me a, a little while to figure that out because <laughs> I was only mixing one at the, uh, or micing one stack for a while and kept wondering why it sounded so bad and I finally realized it was the stack that had all the treble <laughs> turned up so right. we finally learned that lesson and balanced it better but Paige was also just fantastic. Great player, great tone could get out of the Les Paul and then uh, John Paul played an ac- he had an acoustic bass amp one of the old acoustic 360s, I think it was, and he played a jazz bass, and uh, and he also had keyboards. He had a Mellotron, the uh, tape where you know it was it had internal tapes that you could pick various sounds, make it sound like different things, and then I think he played a Fender Rhodes. But he was uh, he is a fantastic musician, mm-hmm. very highly That's skilled
0: I uh, watched a documentary on them where they really that was the focus of why they came together it was yeah. just the idea of four incredible yeah. musicians yeah. really trying to come together to yeah. to do it
1: and they they were they were real uh they did care a lot about the way they sounded they that was a big in fact you know when we started when you look at the the pictures of the stage uh on the very first gigs that I did and the very first tour you know, there were no lights at all on the stage. Nothing. All that was on the stage was the band gear and the PA. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And I put it all. The first tour, I did the whole thing in one 18-foot truck, and I carried the band gear and the PA in the truck. You know, so it was. Uh, it, you know, it was only 3,000 watt sound system. So, you know, the answer to the question about the evolution is we evolved. You know, from a 3,000 watt system. I don't know how, where we were by the time they stopped, but I'm sure we were up twenty to 30,000 watts by then. Mm-hmm. So, because um, as we migrated from folded horns and horn type enclosures to more reflex oriented enclosures, we, we traded the horn efficiency for lots of amplifiers and lots of speakers. Yeah. And uh, went that direction.
0: You're listening to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Guys, we're going to wrap for today and uh, answer more of these Reddit questions when we get back next week. Uh, I think we're going to keep a thing going here. And uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about in terms of business or product development, but we're going to find something.
1: Okay, sounds um, good.
0: Yep, and uh, thanks for listening, and uh, you guys have a good one.
1: See you later.